Good evening. Welcome to our, what is this, our fifth, sixth annual, fifth annual uh, DFW Ref- Reformation Conference. Uh, we're very glad for you all to come out on a Friday night uh, to, uh, uh, for this opening uh, session of, the, uh, of our conference. Uh, we have the Reverend Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn with us this evening, traveling in from Philadelphia. And uh, uh, so we're, we're thrilled to have you here with us, Dr. Van Dixhorn, and it's a, it's a blessing to to have you here. Um, in just a moment, we're going to open up with a hymn. And so if you want to turn there, it'll be hymn number 87. And uh, I did get this verified um, uh, from, uh, from Dr. Van Dixhorn that the, 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 the words, the versification of Psalm 23 were approved at the Westminster Assembly. Uh, the tune is not the one they sang. Uh, we, we looked, we tried to find that. I don't think it's, maybe it's not in the, in the Trinity hymnal, but um, We'll be singing that in just a few moments, but just a couple of, of words of introduction for Dr. Van Dixhorn. Um, he is, uh, uh, since 2018, a professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Prior to that, he was at RTS in Washington, D.C., where he was the Chancellor's Professor of Historical Theology. Um, he is a, a, a fellow uh, of the Royal Historical Society uh, of uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, he uh, uh, obtained his Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge uh, in 2005. Uh, he received his Th.M. from Westminster Theological Seminary in 2000 and his M.Div. Uh, from Westminster in 1999. And then his Bachelor of Arts is, uh, was obtained and received in, uh, in 1996 from the University of Western Ontario. Uh, and so he is, uh, I think, just within the last few years has become a, a United States citizen I uh, was a citizen of the Crown uh, prior to that, um, so we're glad to have you on board uh, uh, here with us. Um, uh, you may not remember this, but years ago, I was working at Westminster Seminary. Uh, I worked in the, uh, as a student worker in the office for the uh, international students who were coming in, and uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn and his wife owned at that time. I'm not sure if you're still in the, in the house that you owned there in Glenside, very close to the seminary, but they would rent out a, a basement apartment, a room, and there was a young woman uh, from Mexico who's an international student. I think her name was Fran, Francilia, uh, and I had to call you um, about some matter related to her renting your apartment. I can't remember what it was exactly, but that was the first contact that I'd ever made with, uh, with Dr. Van Dixhorn. This would have been in probably 2004, 2005, and uh, Calling him up, I don't know what time it was. I knew, uh, I was aware of the time difference between the United States and England. Uh, I think I probably tried to be sensitive to it, but but at any rate, uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn was extraordinarily gracious. And at that point, um, uh, he had just sort of gotten on my radar. And so, I, you know, as a student at Westminster, I think I was a first or second year student, I felt pretty, you know, pretty important. I've just spoken with Dr. Van Dixon on the phone and, uh, and talked about the, you know, these matters related to renting out an apartment uh, for this young woman in, the, in his house. Um, uh, that was the, the, the first encounter, and the second uh, took many years uh, uh, to take place, and that was in 2017. Uh, we were both, and I think Elder Wiley was also uh, at the 2017 General Assembly up at uh, Trinity Christian College in the Chicago suburbs. And in God's providence, uh, I'll leave it uh, to you or to Dr. Van Dixon to determine whether it was a good or, a, or a, <laughs> a not so good providence, but we ended up on the advisory committee for the Christian Education uh, Committee uh, for our denomination. And I learned a trick from another man named Chad, in this case it was Chad Bond, um, that, that 
you, you must preemptively nominate a person to serve uh, in a capacity if you yourself don't want to serve in that. And so I preemptively nominated Dr. Van Dixhorn to be the, the clerk for this advisory committee. I, I, the logic was he spent all these years studying the Westminster Assembly and its minutes. Who would do a better job of being a clerk on this advisory committee than, than him? And, and, uh, and though it, it certainly was a, uh, you know, what, what many would consider to be a menial task, he didn't treat it as such. And he uh, very, very warmly and, and humbly accepted the role and did a far better job than I ever could have done if someone had seen fit to nominate me. Uh, at that same meeting in 2017, I approached Dr. Van Dixhorn about just the possibility, sort of a theoretical possibility. At some point in the future, would you, would you be willing to make the, make the trek down to the Dallas-Fort Worth area to do a, uh, a conference at a, at a small little OP church? And uh, without hesitation, he, uh, he said, absolutely, just, just let me know. And so I think it was around about a year ago, maybe, perhaps maybe 18 months ago. I don't remember exactly, but I reached back out to him. And, and, and uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn has been nothing but, but gracious in his interactions. Uh, and it's been a delight to, to get to this point. Uh, we are thrilled to have you here. Um, just a couple of other tidbits of information, uh, very important matters of information, really, uh, uh, probably Perhaps most importantly, aside from his faith in Christ, uh, Dr. Van Dixhorn is married to Emily. Uh, they've been married since 1998, and so congratulations on a, on a solid run there. Uh, they have five children, um, and, uh, and, and I noticed I, I was being nosy and going through his, his CV, which is, which is publicly available on the Westminster Seminary Not website. Not his idea. I th this is for material, and I, I noticed that your birthday is just about a month after mine. So, uh, I, I you know I, I think, man, what have I been doing with my life? Here's a here's a guy with uh, practically the same age as me, and uh, he's he's got a lot to lot to show for it. But uh, we are we're thrilled to have you here, brother, and uh, can't wait to to hear what you will uh, bring to us for this conference tonight's uh, opening session is the Westminster Assembly and the Reformation of Pastoral Care. I think that's right. Is pastoral care or preaching? I was planning on doing preaching, but I could switch it. If you no, we can switch it. I've, we've had, we'll, get out, we'll get out the other. As we're singing, John, will you go to my office and pull on the printer, get the other stack of, uh, of, of outlines for preaching, and we'll pass those out. Hold on to the pastoral care ones for tomorrow. Uh, I, well, if you want to just, you can lay them on the seats, and we'll pick them up later. But if you want, while we're singing the hymn, um, so if you're able to, and uh, Julie, are you set to play hymn number 87, or do you want Cheryl to? Cheryl? Cheryl? Let's, why don't you, okay, she's deferring. So yeah, why don't you, if you will, we're going to sing hymn number 87, The Lord's My Shepherd I'll Not Want. Um, so the words were, were um, approved at the Westminster Assembly. The tune uh, you see is much later than the assembly. Um, uh, the tune was made famous when Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip were married in 1947. Uh, this, their wedding put this hymn with this tune on the map. And it became uh, the BBC, apparently, I don't know if they still do, they used to do polls of, of worship music. And, and this was, I think, in, in a poll in the 1980s was, was number two, uh, in large part because of the fact that, uh, uh, that Queen Elizabeth had had this in her, in her wedding service. Um, so let's please uh, stand and sing together hymn number 87, The Lord's My Shepherd I'll Not Want. <clears throat>
God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Good Shepherd. We thank you, O Lord, that you, by Christ Jesus, are the shepherd of your flock. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you comfort and care for your people, that you love us, that you guide us, and that you protect us, you rule over us, but you also defend us. We thank you, O Spirit, that you are our intercessor, our comforter. You are the one who gives us peace, but also who gives us understanding and wisdom. Our great and triune God, we thank you that we have come together tonight for this extracurricular activity. But we thank you that even so, O Lord, we can sing your praises we can gather before you as a people, as your people. And so we pray, O Lord, for your blessings upon us this evening and also in the sessions tomorrow of this conference. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us with further wisdom and understanding. We pray that the end result would be the glory of your holy name. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would grow us in our love for you by means of this conference, we pray for your blessings upon Dr. Van Dixhorn, giving thanks 
to you for his ability to be here. We pray, Lord, that you would guide his speech and that it would be a great blessing to us and that we would be a great blessing to him. But above all, O Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified. We ask this all in the precious name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It is with great pleasure that I invite uh, the Reverend Dr. Van Dixhorn to come up uh, this evening and uh, to to impart to us uh, what you have brought along with you. Thanks, Brother Francis. You'll, you'll soon find out that the importance of the outlines is sort of greatly exaggerated. My outlines are not really designed so much to give clarity to my talks as to give you some hope that it will end. Uh, so I suppose in that sense, it's, it's helpful to have it. Uh, my, my father always thought that it lacked imagination uh, to uh, consult a map before taking a trip. But for those of you who have an underdeveloped sense of adventure, let me tell you where we'll be going in the next 45 minutes or an hour. I, I forget how long this is actually supposed to be. As long as you want to go. Um, so so that's, those are dangerous words. What I'll do tonight is I'll begin by setting the stage by introducing you briefly to the Westminster Assembly um, and uh, mentioning a few problems that the Westminster Assembly addressed. Uh, I'll then outline the Assembly's response and uh, look at a couple of its texts. And finally, I'll I'll offer a description of the kind of preachers and preaching uh, that the Westminster Assembly wanted. For it's these kinds of commitments that undergirded the Assembly's reforms and had the potential to challenge or enrich the pulpit ministries of the church then and, 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 uh, and Christian people in preaching today. Uh, it's always uh, you know, an interesting thing to discuss the 1640s at a Reformation conference. Uh, but the truth is that the English sometimes take a long time to get a job finished. Uh, and so although they began in the 1530s, they, they really only finished uh, more than a century later. And even then, some of them did not really appreciate uh, what was given to them with the work of the assembly. The, assemb- the Westminster Assembly of Divines uh, takes its name from an English abbey in which it met. And the group was comprised of about 20 or 30 theologians and 120 members of parliament, uh, excuse me, uh, 30 members of parliament and 120 theologians. Um, the latter, almost to a man, uh, ministers of the Church of England. It met during a horrific uh, complex of wars uh, in the 17th century, really a series of wars civil wars in England, Scotland, and Ireland, and wars between all those countries, all at the same time. Uh, At the end of one of them, uh, the king lost his head. At the end of another one, Oliver Cromwell had come to power. Well, along the way, in the midst of this chaos, uh, the Westminster Assembly produced a confession of faith, a larger and shorter catechism, some books called directories, in total about 140 different documents. Uh, many of which survive. Well, I could spend a day setting the scene and talking about the Assembly's accomplishments. Uh, Perhaps tonight it might be better uh, to give you a sense of what it was like to sit in the the Westminster Assembly and to discuss biblical exegesis and church history and theology and church practice, uh, much like we're, we're doing tonight and tomorrow. 
Um, I know I'm competing with uh, pizza and a movie, so I'm going to try and uh, present a scene here, and hopefully it'll be sufficiently vivid uh, to keep you going. The Westminster Assembly met in a room about this size. Uh, it was an incredibly small room, um, and uh, bleachers were built along the sides, or stands, um, and uh, the, the prolocutor sat on a platform just, just slightly raised, um, up above the, the main level of the floor, a, a bit like this one is. Uh, in front of him sat his two, his two deputies, or assessors. Uh, and then there's a long table that ran down the middle of the room. On the, uh, I guess, the, the Chitty family side of the table here, I, my left, yes, my left side of the table, uh, the scribes sat in a row, all facing the big windows, uh, which were on the which were on this side of the room, um, uh, get, give, giving them lots of light. Uh, the prolocutor had behind him a huge, huge stained glass window. Um, on, the, on, on the prolocutor's left, all the oldest and best educated uh, members of the assembly sat in the first set of bleachers. Then there was a big fireplace over where the Troutmans are sitting, um, on, on, again on my left, midway through the room. And, and the lords, members of the House of Lords, sat right in front of the fireplace uh, and blocked the heat. Um, and the Westminster divines, the ministers, paid for the fuel for the fire, which was not entirely fair. Um, then, then from the fireplace to a door in the back corner, which was the main door, there was like a little, a little space where you could kind of walk into the room. Uh, on, on the back wall and then down the side by, by the windows, all the way up to the prolocutor's right-hand side, there, there, were, there were different, different divines sitting uh, right, right on his right-hand side, on the, bo- on the bottom row, were Scottish commissioners uh, from Scotland, uh, which was where Scottish commissioners normally come from, Scotland. Um, and then behind them, members of the House of Commons. Uh, these, uh, most of the people sitting down the, that one wall and the back wall were, were, were Presbyterians. The troublemakers sat in the back corner over where Mr. Crowbuck is. Um, I'll just let you read into that everything that you want. Uh, these are the people who would sort of, you know, vote against the majority, ask sticky questions, and cause all kinds of trouble. So that gives you some sense uh, uh, for where the Westminster Assembly met. It, it, uh, it met uh, in the midst of a, a kind of mini ice age. It was really cold. Uh, the Thames froze over. Um, uh, many of the, the divines were not properly paid, and therefore they were hungry. Um, the water was not safe to drink in most places in England, and so they drank beer instead. The average Englishman drank about seven pints of beer a day. Um, and so just factor that into your thankfulness for the clarity of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, uh, and you'll be at the right spot tonight. Well, in the eyes of Parliament, the English Parliament, uh, people petitioning Parliament for change and in the eyes of the pastors assembled in this room called the Jerusalem Chamber, one of the major problems, major grievances of provoking these wars, uh, wars that had broke out a couple years before between Charles I and his subjects, one of the main, one of the main problems was religion. Uh, specifically, the plans or designs of, of a man named Archbishop William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the most important clergyman in England. Um, 
These were plans that Archbishop Laud had first um, uh, to change the Church of England, but he implemented his most radical changes in Scotland, which went very badly for him, um, and, and, then, and then also again in England. Um, any, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that were going on uh, in, in our first lecture tomorrow. Uh, any hope of getting royal approval, the king's approval, for this assembly of divines that Parliament had decided to call was doomed from the start. The rebel Parliament said that each man called to come to the assembly must attend. King Charles ruled that each person called to the assembly must not. Um, but, but many did come. And what's more, by September of 1643, so this is in the summer of 1643, by the, by, by the autumn of 1643, a solemn league and covenant, a, an agreement that had military and religious implications had been signed between the leaders, the rebels in, in, in uh, England and the rebels in Scotland, uh, with Ireland thrown in for good measure. Uh, so, so now uh, with, with this agreement between uh, the Scots and the English, uh, in addition to English members being in the assembly, which was all there was for a few months, Scots uh, joined in the autumn of 1643 as well. Um, the members at the assembly were allotted four shillings per day uh, for attending. Uh, and taxpayers wondered, or were worried rather, that uh, equipped with a favorite cushion, as one newspaper put it, uh, these ministers would be happy to uh, talk about theology until Jesus Christ returned. Um, as, as it happens, uh, Parliament did not often pay them, so the taxpayers were not burdened uh, by the assembly. Um, and they were right about the fact that the Westminster Assembly might sit for a long time. Uh, the gathering had about 1,400 working sessions from the 1st of July, 1643, to the spring of April 15. Eight, uh, fifth, oh, to the sp spring, let me see, a April, April 15, or 1653. Uh, don't ask a historian for dates. Um, well, uh, through that time, uh, they wrote more than 100 documents, as I said, um, and uh, they're, they're well known for some of those documents, the confession, catechisms, and so on. What, what's not well known is that the assembly, assembly spent most of its time uh, or not most of its time, but the majority of its time, more time than anything else, uh, examining ministers. Uh, not writing, not debating, but examining ministers regarding their understanding of church history, the Bible, theology, and so on. Well, the English Civil War is the backdrop uh, to the Assembly's reforming efforts. And the war was caused by economic problems, political problems, and as I mentioned, religious tensions. And the religious tensions had simmered the longest. Uh, Queen Elizabeth's ecclesiastical compromise uh, in the 16th century had left a legacy of problems in the church, not least when it came to preaching. Many of her bishops and most of her Puritan subjects supported more preaching, better preaching, uh, and training for preachers. One of the ways in which preachers were kind of given on-the-job training or kind of continuing education in preaching was through something called prophesying. Now, now it's not quite what it sounds like uh, for those of you who have come from charismatic churches. Um, prophesying in the 16th century and beyond 
was a, was a, was an experience, was a practice inherited from Zurich uh, in Switzerland. And, and it involved a group of preachers team teaching or team preaching one sermon. Um, so, so without letting everybody compare notes or uh, without telling people what was, what was going to happen overall, um, without giving people a, a plot to run, uh, to run with for the whole sermon, uh, the first preacher would come up and he would for 15 minutes or half an hour uh, exegete a passage. Then the next preacher would come up, not knowing what the previous preacher was going to say, and he would explain the doctrines in the passage that was just explained. And he would do that for 15 minutes or half an hour. And then the next guy would come up, again, not knowing what the previous two guys were going to say, um, and, and he would exchange, explain how these doctrines were useful. Um, and then the, the fourth guy would come, and he would try and assemble all the pieces and drive it home. And he's the guy who tried to apply it to the heart. Now, as you can imagine, this would be way more interesting than a normal sermon. I mean, imagine if instead of just Pastor Troutman, you had four different preachers, and none of them knew what you know, the previous one was going to say. Uh, no kind of overall plot here, uh, just one passage that you're surprising them with at the beginning of the service. That would be really entertaining. But not just entertaining, it would also be kind of useful. If you were someone trying to think through how to preach, you would be sitting there thinking, what's he going to do with that? How's he going to work that in? Uh, you, you know, are they going to agree on that point? And so on. And that exercise of listening to these men did this was a wonderful kind of on-the-job training uh, or a kind of continuing edu- education for preaching. Well, the, uh, the, the prophesyings were useful, and they helped take some men who, who either because of laziness or a lack of of ability, we're just reading sermons from week to week. Uh, and it enabled them to learn how to construct, construct and, and deliver their own sermons. W- one of the uh, clergymen most in favor of these exercises was the then Archbishop, and named Ed- Edmund Grindall, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, and uh, Grindall uh, loved the prophesyings. He saw how useful they were, but unfortunately, Soon after he was consecrated archbishop, rumors reached the queen about disorderly prophesying events. And you can kind of imagine how an event like this might go off the rails. Um, you know, people beginning to disagree with each other, argue with the other preachers. Um, audiences back then, more than audiences today, would sometimes interact with the preacher and disagree with them. Um, so this gave... This gave some scope for some, for some rowdiness. Well, Elizabeth heard about disorderly events, and she summoned Grindall to London to explain himself and reminded him that she wanted the prophesyings abolished. Um, she reminded him, too, of her view that it was enough for a, a county just to have a couple preachers, a handful of preachers at most, uh, no, no more than that would be needed. She preferred read sermons, not preached sermons. Uh, if they were reading sermons, she knew what would be said in the churches. If people are preaching sermons, well, who knows what a pastor might come up with. Um, fatefully, Archbishop Grindall informed the queen that she was wrong. Public and continual preaching of God's word is the ordinary means and instrument of the salvation of mankind, he said. 
St. Paul calls it the ministry of reconciliation of man unto God. By preaching of God's word, the glory of God is enlarged, faith is nourished, and charity is increased. By it, the ignorant is instructed, the negligent exhorted and incited, the stubborn rebuked, the weak conscience comforted. Grindel also made an assertion about the relationships between monarchs and the church. Bear with me, I beseech you, madam, if I choose rather to offend your earthly majesty than to, than to offend the heavenly majesty of God. And remember, madam, that you are a mortal creature. Prior to this point, no one had thought it wise to inform the queen of that fact. <laughs> Elizabeth had Grindal replaced, and although King James would support increased preaching, Charles and Archbishop William Laud would not. Even if one was ordained, it did not mean that you could preach. That was an entirely separate process of certification and approval. Uh, the assumption was that, preachers, that, that pastors would not be preachers uh, unless some extra steps were taken. So one of the problems in the church has to do with the quantity of the preachers. There's not enough of them. The other problem had to do with quality. And so when the Civil War started, and since the majority of members who remained in Parliament were Puritans of one sort or another, they began ejecting scandalous preachers from their pulpits. From London, from the surrounding area, as far as they could reach. One of the members of Parliament, uh, a man named John White, felt he needed to justify Parliament removing preachers from their pulpits. And so he printed a catalog of the names and faults of the first 100 preachers removed from their pulpits. The first century, as he called it, of preachers. Well, White's tawdry tale begins with John Wilson of Arlington, who was accused of buggery and attempted bestiality and drifts into accounts of drunken ministers, popishly affected pastors. Those are probably the two most common complaints. As well as accounts of clergy who are womanizers, rapists, thieves, gamblers, Sabbath breakers, and outspoken critics of Parliament. Uh, the pamphlet offered accounts of battery, sexual assault, verbal abuse in the home, one minister threatening to burn his wife and children alive. Bribery, neglect of the pulpit, flirting from the pulpit, misogynist jokes from the pulpit, making a business venture out of burials, begging for money during communion, and just bad-tempered behavior like throwing communion elements on the ground, name-calling from the pulpit, public cursing, even excommunicating a lame man who did not kneel at communion. These were seen to be problematic on the part of Parliament. Uh, and the credibility of these accounts is only enhanced by the enumeration of places and names, including, unfortunately, the names of the victims. And by the, by the fact that these cases were tried publicly, if not in the normal courts, at least uh, by Parliament itself, and by the fact that this book was printed with parliamentary authority. So White's booklet focuses on ministers near the Acropolis, near the, uh, not the Acropolis, near the metropolis, uh, but of course problematic pastors were scattered around the nation. And so the Westminster Assembly, knowing this, once it was called uh, in 1643, asked Parliament to continue getting rid of bad ministers. 
uh, inept pastors, sectarian pastors, popish pastors, and lay preachers. But of course, getting rid of ministers is one thing. Um, but a proper reformation of the church needs more than that. You need to replace the ministers with something better. And this required immediate action. Uh, Parliament assigned the task of examining uh, ministers uh, who might want to move from church A to church B. Uh, assign that task to the Westminster Assembly. If, if anyone wants to try and upgrade or move closer to grandma or anything like that, any movement of a minister from one church to another, they had to be examined by the Westminster Assembly. There's a sort of filter through which they could begin. It was, it was an excuse uh, to, to, to examine ministers and a kind of filter through which ministers need to pass. They had to be examined by the assembly. Later, uh, the assembly would also examine new ministers, uh, graduates from, from university uh, who, who wanted to serve as pastors. They too would need to be examined by the assembly. Um, oddly enough, although the assembly started examining people already in the summer of 1643, they did not draw up any rules or procedures by uh, outlining how they would do so uh, until a, a couple months later. Uh, in total, the Westminster Assembly uh, had about 50 different committees that dealt with uh, examining. There's kind of one steady committee and then all different other committees that would deal with problematic people, of which there turned out to be many. Uh, and they examined 4,000 ministers, uh, about 1,000 of them twice. The Church of England only had about 10,000 ministers. So this is a pretty comprehensive and invasive attempt to try and reform the preaching of England. And I would just say, if you ever have a, a Candidates and Credentials Committee, uh, a group of presbyters who examine 4,000 men, they probably have some wisdom uh, uh, on, on what should be involved in a good examination. At the very least, they probably have developed fairly good uh, sensibilities about what, about what they're looking for in, in a pastorate or in a preacher. Well, the assembly did a lot of examining. Um, a, the, the way in which they reformed the church was not so much by changing the preaching, but by changing the preachers. But they did care about what kind of preaching would be done by the preachers they examined. They did have a plan. Um, and one part of that plan can be seen right in the middle of the Directory for Public Worship. The Directory for Public Worship um, was, a, was a document uh, comprised of all kinds of little directories that kind of get all glued together and published. Uh, it's like a DIY liturgy. Um, you kind of, the, the raw parts are there, but you, you, have, to, you have to build things yourself. Um, the... Uh, Right in the middle is a directory, or a subdirectory called Of the Preaching of the Word. And it explained for anyone who would read this, not just ministers, but members of congregations, what a good sermon should be like. And how a good sermon should be preached, and by whom. I, I think it's, uh, you know, it had the potential to be a little bit awkward or subversive. Imagine if you were not a very good preacher. Uh, and your congregation is required to buy these little booklets called the Directory for Public Worship. And people begin to read it and they say, oh, sermons are supposed to have interesting introductions. We never knew that. Uh, oh, sermons are supposed to have good illustrations. Never heard one of those. Um, it'd be a little bit like 
being a fairly lousy preacher and inviting Sinclair Ferguson in on a Sunday. And you say, like, oh, preaching can sound like that? Um, I would imagine that the Directory for Public Worship probably caused trouble sometimes uh, as people began to read about good sermons and begin to even want some. If you read the little section on the preaching of the word, just a few pages, um, we can hear how a sermon was to be constructed and delivered. But you also encounter the Westminster Assembly's understanding of the kind of person the preacher ought to be. And as I see it, the assembly indicates that it expects the preacher to be a scholar, a worshiper, an orator, an apologist, a pastor, and a servant. Let me take each one of those in turn. Even before he enters the pulpit, the preacher is called to be a scholar. Uh, referring readers back to an earlier Westminster Assembly document called the Directory for Ordination, which gives all the rules of what you're to examine a man in if he's going to be a preacher. Uh, referring people back to the Directory for Ordination, the, uh, the Directory for Worship says that a minister must, in some good measure, be gifted for so weighty a service. He is to have skill in the original languages and in such arts and sciences as our handmaids to divinity. He's to have knowledge in the whole body of theology, but most of all in the Holy Scriptures. He is to be able to understand and to summarize Scripture, to analyze and divide texts, to ensure that the truths that he preaches and expounds are contained in grounded or are grounded on the text that he's actually preaching. Uh, and he's to chiefly insist upon those doctrines which are principally intended in the passage he addresses. You've all heard sermons and you think, yeah, that was edifying, it was true. I'm not quite sure it came from this passage. Uh, the Westminster Assembly is saying there actually needs to be a connection between the sermon and the passage that's read before the sermon. Um, he's to be a scholar who can do this kind, who can do this kind of work. Nonetheless, we're told, he's to be the kind of scholar whose teaching is expressed in plain terms. Because his work is not for the benefit of his peers. It's for the benefit of his congregation. He's a scholar. In the paragraphs most clearly emphasizing, emphasizing a preacher's scholarly abilities, the assembly also emphasized that he is to be a worshiper. In fact, immediately after stressing that a preacher is to be a student of truth, and an expert in the Bible, the directory states that the preacher must have his senses and heart exercised in them above the common sort of believers. He is to trust in the illumination of God's spirit and other gifts of edification. In reading and studying of the word and in seeking God by prayer and a humble heart, the preacher is always to be resolving to admit and receive any truth not yet attained whenever God shall make it known unto him. That seems to be a good thing for preachers. If you're studying the Bible and you discover a truth, you need to accept that truth. In fact, that seems to be a good rule for Christians too and the way in which we read the Bible. Assembly members considered preparation for preaching as an act of piety, a sanctifying experience of personal worship. And the minister, the congregation is told that the minister should improve um, 
on uh, his private preparations before he delivers in public what he has studied. In other words, he's to apply it to himself. He's to be persuaded in his own heart that all that he teaches is the truth of Christ. And earnestly, both in private and in public, recommending his labors to the blessing of God and watchfully looking to himself and the flock whereof the Lord has made him overseer. He is to be a worshiper. Preachers are not merely professionals paid to study topics and make sermons. Nonetheless, they are to be orators, men who are able to construct and deliver addresses that are organized and persuasive. The assembly expected sermons to have introductions, well-ordered arguments, and illustrations that engender, they say, spiritual delight. Uh, The directory directs the preacher to exhort, to explain, to insist. The liability of the label orator, and I'm not totally satisfied with it, is that it could suggest preaching just a kind of rhetoric. Uh, The assembly would reject that. the subdirectory for preaching insists that the preacher communicate in a manner that the meanest may understand. That doesn't, that doesn't mean the most nasty person in the church. It means the simplest uh, or, or less, least educated person in the church. Uh, that the meanest may understand, delivering the truth not in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. He's to be in order. While they knew that preaching would be a work of great difficulty, requiring prudence, zeal, meditation, what the assembly really wanted were men who could preach in such a way that the auditors, and I quote, may feel the word of God to be quick and powerful, living and powerful, to discover the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And if any ignorant or unbelieving person be present, he may have the secrets of his heart made manifest and give glory to God. Well, the directory also insists that a preacher is to be aware of and respond to error. There's a a kind of apologetic dimension to preaching. Um, There's no assumption on the part of this directory that people who come to worship are going to believe whatever the preacher says. Uh, That's why sermons need to employ places of scripture confirming the doctrine and why those places are uh, are rather to be plain and pertinent than many. This is what they mean by that. Um, you don't make your best argument by just heaping up lots of references to biblical texts after each one. You make, you make your best argument by, by, by looking through the scriptures for the strongest argument uh, and the clearest explanation of your doctrine. I, I've been to churches where the ministers kind of heap up biblical texts like sort of bricks without mortar, just kind of piles of them. Uh, that's not a structure. It's not building. It's just piling. Uh, you build when you set one text beside the next text. You kind of glue them together with good arguments. You cement them together well. The assembly also said that the preachers to offer arguments or reasons that are solid and as much as may be convincing. We can't always convince. Not all solid arguments are convincing arguments. What is more, if any doubt obvious from Scripture, reason, or the prejudice of the hearers seems to arise It's important to try and remove it, answering reasons, discovering and taking away causes of prejudice and mistake. Now, of course, you've probably met ministers whose whose hobby it is to refute error um, or to refute heresy. 
And so the assembly also adds quite sensibly, it is not fit to detain the hearers with propounding and answering vain or wicked cavils or arguments, which as they are endless, so the propounding and answering of them does more hinder than promote edification. Um, uh, there, there are people who are always kind of hunting about for an error that they can refute. They might not be very interesting preachers. They might not have a good Sunday school program, uh, but they're good at pointing out heresy and shouting it down. Uh, the assembly is saying, don't, don't, don't make that your main thing. Or they put it another way. In refuting false doctrines, he's neither to raise an old heresy from the grave nor to mention a blasphemous opinion unnecessarily. But if the people be in danger of an error, he is to confute it soundly and endeavor to satisfy their judgments and consciences against all objections. You don't need to teach your congregation all the heresies that are out there just so that you can then refute them. But you do need to explain the ones that they're likely to be engaging, that they're likely to come across in a Bible study or at the workplace. The minister is to be an apologist. Unsurprisingly, the assembly speaks to preachers in such a way as to remind them that both in his motivations and in his concern, he is also a pastor. The preacher is to address the people in such a way that they sense his loving affection, his godly zeal and hearty desire to do them good. He's to walk before his flock as an example to them in it, watchfully looking to himself and the flock whereof the Lord has made him an overseer. He's to be mindful both of their weakness and their sinfulness. His sermons aren't to be too complicated. He is neither to burden the memory of the hearers in the beginning with too many members of division, nor to trouble their minds with obscure terms of art. What, what's it, what, are, they, what are they saying? Um, don't say I have four points this morning. My third point has two points, and the second sub-point has three further sub-points. You know, they're saying, don't do that. Don't do that. I actually preached a sermon once with 17 points. Uh, this is the kind of thing they don't want to happen to poor, innocent Christians. Um, and not to bother them with obscure terms of art. What's that mean? Well, it means that, uh, that not every term that you learn in seminary needs to be shared in a sermon. Uh, his concern is to be for their souls. Uh, he, he's a good preacher. Uh, not only just calls them to... to people to their duties he helps them know how to get there um, and he points out the danger and misery of sin comfort against temptations troubles and terrors he's to answer objections that troubled hearts will will likely raise against his preaching and by living with them by talking with them he'll know how to use, make the best uses the best applications of texts and doctrines such as may most draw their souls to Christ, the fountain of light, holiness, and comfort. Preachers are to be pastors. Above all, the preacher is a servant or minister. While preaching is one of the greatest and most excellent works, the directory says, it remains work. The preacher is a workman, one who hopes not to be ashamed when his master returns and assesses his labors. He's a minister of Christ. He's also a minister to the people. He's a servant to them. He's to work hard to make sure his sermon is not a burden for them to carry. Trouble for their minds, hard for their memories. He's to have in view their edification and benefit and to try and make it as easy for them as possible. He's to offer a moving service to get rid of doubts, prejudices, all kinds of problems, whatever might hinder the progress of his congregation. As a servant, 
He must not rest with easy applications, the Westminster Assembly says, but give them something useful, even if it prove a work of great difficulty to himself. I, I, I grew up at a church where you could see the application of the sermon coming a mile away. You know, you knew what it was going to be. It was going to be the exact same as last week. It was just totally boring, had no impact. You know, at some point say, you really don't believe that, do you? Or, and you don't really do that, do you? And it was just basically the same question every week. It was easy. It was easy application. All the thought went into the exegesis. None of the thought went into the application. Uh, the Westminster Assembly says, please don't do that. It ends this section by saying that he's to recommend his labors to the blessing of God. And so shall the doctrine of truth be preserved uncorrupt. Many souls converted and built up, and himself receive manyfold comforts of his labors, even in this life, and afterward the crown of glory laid up for him in the world to come. He's to be a servant who waits for his crown at another day. Well, so far I've been just thinking about what the Westminster Assembly says about preachers and preaching. Uh, I, I, I think the topic of the Westminster Assembly and their attempt to reform preaching in England would be incomplete, not even properly introduced, if I would not also mention what can be learned about preachers and preaching from the writings of the Westminster divines themselves. For many of them were prolific writers, and they cared a lot about preaching. So seeing the sand in the hourglass slipping away, let me close this evening by presenting seven marks of a Puritan pulpit theology. Seven topics in about 11 minutes. Not a very Puritan thing to do, is it? The first mark of a Puritan pulpit is that it's occupied by a man ordained to the gospel ministry by Christ Church. George Gillespie, a Scottish commissioner to the assembly, had ordination in mind when he recalled a summative question asked by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. How then shall they preach except they be sent? From this he inferred, he gathered that, that preachers are given a special call and a special office. Not everybody is sent. Not every sheep is a shepherd. Not every citizen is an ambassador. Gillespie was responding to people at his day who thought there was no sacred calling, no solemn setting apart of men to ministry. That's a view he found unworkable and unbiblical. He pictures the chaos if everybody's a preacher. And he returns to the Apostle Paul's word. Some are set apart, only they are sent. That's really the core of the doctrine of ordination, the idea of appointment, Sunday. Preachers need to be ordained. They also need to be trained. John Lightfoot, a member of the assembly, uh, argued that study was needful for anyone to be a preacher since it was necessary even for the apostles. They engaged in hearing, study, conference, and meditation. They were with Christ himself for a full year before they were sent out to preach their first sermon. Some decry or denounce learning and study. But Thomas Goodwin notes that Timothy was commanded to study. Timothy, who had learned under the Apostle Paul. Goodwin argues that extempore preaching only, uh, without study, someone just kind of walks up and starts talking, uh, is actually contrary to Scripture and the models that we see there. He also comments, I think perceptively, that those who argue against study are often people who have had many conversations, who have heard many sermons. Uh, they're not actually coming into the pulpit with a blank slate. 
Nobody does. Actually, that can't quite be true. I think I have heard a couple ministers who came into the pulpit with a blank slate. But for the most part, that's not what happens. But that doesn't mean that learning always has to be displayed in the pulpit. In a lengthy exchange at the Westminster Assembly, in a big debate about, about how preaching should be done, some men argued that citing authors or using foreign phrases in the pulpit was problematic. John Arrowsmith was one who disagreed. Displays of learning are permissible. And he cited Augustine in Latin uh, to show that this was not a new idea in the church. Preachers need to be ordained. They need to be trained. They also need to be godly. And indeed, it is axiomatic. It's basic that the reformation of the pulpit, urged by the Westminster Assembly, called for pious preachers. In the beginning, the assembly asked that unable idle or scandalous ministers be replaced by able and faithful ministers. Most often in the uh, assembly's writings, these worthy preachers that they're looking for are simply called godly ministers, but they're also called godly and reverent divines, godly and faithful ministers, godly and able ministers, or even godly grave judicious and learned ministers of the word. And when they were flattering their Scottish friends, the assembly spoke of honorable, reverent, learned, and godly ministers. When discussing potential candidates for minister, ministry, they spoke about godly and hopeful men. When considering the next generation still training for the ministry, they wrote about godly and hopeful students. Godliness was essential. There was a moment in the history of the assembly when Parliament decided uh, that they did not want the assembly to examine men both for godliness and learning. They sent an order after doing this for three years saying, saying, examine him for godliness and learning. Examine him for godliness and learning. They sent an order saying, examine him for learning. And they suddenly said, wait a minute, what's wrong here? And they decided on the spot they would not examine any more ministers until Parliament allowed them to examine them both for learning and for godliness. They wondered how to deal with the problem. They eventually sent one of their members, a man named Peter Smith, by himself over to Parliament. And he returned a little while later saying, we're back to examining for godliness again. Both of the apostles, the apostle Paul's pastoral epistles, place a priority of emphasis on a pastor's purity. Uh, an emphasis on his, on his purity over his abilities, over his learning. Uh, you could just see that by reading Titus chapter 1, for example. Oliver Bowles, a patriarch of the Westminster Assembly, dedicated more than a third of his manual for preachers, a book being translated now for the first time. More than a third of his manual for preachers and pastors is on the pastor's life and devotion. It is significant, it is significant that the discussion occupies the first part of the book. Godliness is part of the prerequisites of what it means to be a preacher. Um, and uh, Bowles argues that it involves things like a commitment to gravity, reverence, holiness, setting good company, and the example that we keep, and things like avoiding bribes, loving the scripture, and living amongst the people that you serve, if at all possible. Well, the fourth plank in a Puritan pulpit ministry is frequently found in exhortations to hearers of sermons, and not simply to preachers. Ministers need to be ordained, learned, and godly because, quoting George Gillespie again, hearers are to receive the word from the mouths of ministers as God's word. According to William Googe, this is the message of Hebrews chapter 13. 
which reads, Remember them who have the rule over you, who spoke to you the word of God. And the Westminster Divines argue, they're not talking about just reading the Bible. They're talking about reading the Bible and then preaching the Bible. It's not just the ambassador reading the king's declaration that is the king's message. It's the further explanation and pressing home of that declaration that is still part of the king's message. According, uh, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs makes this point from a line in Isaiah 66. He often sometimes just takes one line and then preaches on it for a year or so. Um, uh, Here he makes a point from a line from Isaiah 66, and that trembleth at my word. Here he's trying to cultivate a little reverence among his hearers for the preaching of the word. A God-fearing man or, or woman, he says, does not come by to hear the word in an ordinary way, merely to spend so much time or to hear what a man could say. Rather, the word either read or preached is attended to with all reverence. Such a one examines the preaching, but doesn't rail against it or mock it. Burroughs holds up Moab's king Eglon as an example to be followed by the saints. Not, of course, in his heathenish ways, as Burroughs puts it, nor in his untimely or disgusting death, but as one who rose to, rose to receive Ehud as an ambassador with a message from God. Burroughs then pushes the knife in a little deeper and asks his hearers if their hearts swell against preaching asking them what they really think about preaching and pointing out the irony of those who think they've escaped the world but still show the worst pride when the word of God is preached. Well, underlying this discussion of irreverence and pride is the assumption obvious for Burroughs that the faithful preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And because preaching is the word of God, irreverence and pride are scandalous. Well, if preaching is the word of God, then preaching the word of God faithfully, correctly, is the word of God, then what's its place in the Christian in the Christian life and worship? Well, unsurprisingly, the divines answer that preaching is the ordinary means of, of grace for Christians, which is, which is my fifth point. Anthony Burgess states that the faithful ministry of, of the word of God is the sure and ordinary way for conversion of men from their evil ways. He states this even more strongly in an exposition of 1 Corinthians 3. The ministry is the only ordinary way that God has appointed either for the beginnings or increase of grace. After all, faith is said to come by hearing. And then his own text informs the Corinthians that Paul and Apollos were ministers by whom you believed. In 1649, William Greenhill dedicated a preface to a portion of his Ezekiel commentary to a defense of preaching's primacy. And he argues that where the word of God is not expounded, preached, and applied, people perish. People perish. But is this always the case? What if people are actually not benefiting from the sermons? Alexander Henderson once admitted in a sermon, I know many of you who have said when you come out from the preaching, kind of shaking hands at the door, uh, that your souls have been nothing bettered by it. I think people might have been more candid back then. I usually get good morning. Um, well, if that kind of thing is said, preachers would, Puritans would ask a question. There's a question they would ask, and it was put to preachers. Were they preaching Christ? When he read, Ezekiel's, read about Ezekiel's practice of proclaiming all that the Lord had shown him, 
Greenhill had little difficulty seeing here an imperative, a command for ministers that they are to preach only and to preach everything that they learn about at, at, that they learn at Christ's school, including preaching about Christ. Echoing similar sentiments, a man named Obadiah Sedgwick states that it's but labor lost to set up anything but Christ. Ministers are to be much in preaching Christ. Again, your labors in preaching will come to little, perhaps to nothing, if it not be Christ or something in reference to Christ on which you so laboriously, laboriously insist in preaching. Thomas Goodwin submits that preachers would add more beauty to their own feet, a reference to Romans 10, if they would preach more of the gospel, less truths of the moment. These sentiments are so common in the writings of the divines that I count Christ-centered preaching as the sixth of the seven marks of a Puritan pulpit ministry as it's expounded by the Westminster Assembly. As John Arrowsmith writes, true ministers set up Christ in their ministry. They are content themselves to stand in the crowd and to lift up Christ upon their shoulders, content not to be seen themselves, so Christ be exalted. The last but not least distinguishing mark of a Puritan pulpit ministry is a reliance on the Holy Spirit. In arguing for preaching, Puritans were always ready to admit that uh, preaching did not appear to be the most sensible means of advancing the gospel. Even in the 17th century, preaching was despised. It was contemptible to human reason. But they would often argue that the so-called problem with preaching was, in fact, the answer. God deliberately chooses a humble means so that it will amplify his greatness, his Holy Spirit's work. Anthony Burgess harks back to the picture of 1 Corinthians 3, where, where, where Paul tells people that the preachers might, might uh, sow, they might water, but it's God who gives the increase. As in the administration of the sacraments, preaching is not automatically effective. And it's not always instantly effective. The word, whether visible or audible, needs to be received by spirit-given faith. And so, although preachers are described as co-workers with God, Burgess reminds us that a minister may be faithful but have no success, since success is God's work, not the minister's duty. Samuel Rutherford says something similar and applies it to far more than just preaching. He reminds us that the benefit of all that we do rests in the Spirit's working. And maybe that's the note on which I should end. As we reflect on our sins and failures and weakness as Christians, or for a couple people here as preachers, let us remember the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not simply for ourselves, um, but also for those whom we love, pray for, and perhaps preach to. Thank you. Okay, so what's next? Is this Q&A? Is this yeah, run out the door? <coughs> Field some sure. Yeah. 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 You. You. You have command of the clock. Yes, Harry. I'll try this. Um, so I really didn't know the um, the background that you came to the problem of quality, quantity of preaching. In yeah. Westminster. So that's really interesting. Thank you for that. As you were talking, it struck me that this is the problem that Reformed folks have struggled with ever since. So 100 yeah. years later, with the First Great Awakening, the revivalists said there are too many unconverted ministers that struggle with the same moral failures that you talked about. Yes. And then once um, the United States spread across the frontier, it became impossible for the Reformed churches to produce enough trained 
ordained ministers to minister across the frontier, whereas the Baptists and Methodists with lower standards were able to meet the needs, so to speak, and we've suffered the consequences of that ever since. So anyway, I'd be interested in your reaction to the, yeah, yeah. the struggle that we've had for 300 years now. Yeah. So, so the comment, in case anyone didn't hear it, is that the Westminster Assembly seems to be dealing with a perennial problem with quantity and quality of preachers. Uh, we see it replicated in American history. Um, and uh, the way in which Baptists and Methodists solve the quantity problem is, was by uh, uh, making it extremely easy to become a preacher. Uh, with the Methodists, you just need to say you're in agreement with the General Conference or something like that, and you can be a preacher. Um, uh, uh, Baptists sometimes uh, had about, about that many hurdles between conversion and ministry. Um, you know, interestingly, uh, the Westminster Assembly, I think, doesn't do the best job it could here. It, uh, it sets up a filter uh, that gets rid of the, the bad ministers. Strangely, and I've never figured this out, what it does not do is revive the old Puritan practice of continuing education. Um, it never sort of lobbies Parliament to get the prophesyings back, for example, where people who see their job being threatened or who actually have a twinge of conscience that says, I think I should do a better job, would be given the tools to try and make better sermons. It's pretty binary, in or out. And so, so they do a lot of work, countless hours, but that isn't odd thing, that they don't have more continuing education. Uh, and then you'll know that in American history, as the church begins to expand, um, as the desire, as, as the need for preachers, in the, especially in the Second Great Awakening, begins to just mushroom as, as, as uh, Americans move west, what do the Presbyterians do? They add more education. You know, before Princeton Seminary, it was just enough to have an undergraduate degree um, and then you would be tested, and then you'd go out and be a minister. In 1812, the Presbyterians add another whole layer. Right, you know, the Baptists are, are just saying, you know, can you speak in complete sentences? No? Okay, but can you say Jesus? You know, the, the Baptists are making it really easy to be a preacher. The Presbyterians add another whole degree. Um, is that a mistake, or are they onto something? As it happens, what that means in American history is that the Presbyterians, although small in number, uh, always kind of punch above their weight in terms of uh, influencing thoughtful people. Um, uh, Presbyterian seminaries become places where non-Presbyterians who realize how important ministry is and how hard it can be uh, end up coming for training. And that has remained the case. Uh, Presbyterian seminaries often find themselves training a great many non-Presbyterians, um, many of whom, as it turns out, are Baptists who have been thrown into ministry and then um, have realized just how hard it is and have come to get retooled and, and helped and so on. And it's, it's a joy to, to do that labor, to, 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 be, to be helping those dear brothers. Yeah. Other, I think there's... Why do they, or why do we call them divines? Uh, so, uh, theological schools used to be called divinity schools. 
So divinity and theology are the exact same thing. Divinity is kind of from a Latin root. Theology is from a Greek root. So instead of calling them theologians, they call them divines. It does sound a little suspicious, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you tend not to say, my pastor is a worthy divine. Uh, although he may be. You might be just want to say he's a good theologian. That's all, it, all it means. Yeah. Good question. So I thought your description of the prophesying was really fascinating. And I recall reading that there was, in the Puritans in America, they were doing things like that in the 17th century. Why don't we have this now? What would that look like in a month? Uh, you just ask your pastor and three of his friends. Uh, frankly, I, I might try and get this started at my seminary. Because I think it's brilliant. Just get, just get a few professors, put them on stage. Don't tell them what's about to happen. Um, and it would be so educational. Yeah. I think it's probably a crisis of confidence amongst most ministers. I want to do this to others. I don't want it done to me. Um, I mean, it's really hard to think on your feet like that. Um, so I think that's part of it. Another thing is, it was part... There was more oral education. There was more testing in those days that was done orally. We do everything written. And so... Um, uh, I, I think being put on the spot in front of large groups doesn't usually happen to pastors unless they teach Sunday schools with Q&As. Um, so for the most time, we, we find ways of avoiding thinking on our feet. Um, and so, so this would be a bit of a fun twist. I think it would be fantastically educational. Um, and it would, it would probably... It would probably be useful for everyone and it would draw a crowd once people caught on to the craziness of what's going on. Yeah. I, I love it. I mean, I, I really think I might try and start it even this year. Students are, everyone asks that question. Why don't we do this anymore? Uh, we probably should. We'll yeah. do our next combined worship service on Sunday. <laughs> but, don't, but don't tell anyone. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I... Uh, in uh, talking about ordination and ordained preachers, um, how would the, the the Puritans or the Westminster divines respond to someone like like John Bunyan, for instance, who uh, um, you, when when he was called on it, uh, he said, you know, I've been ordained by my church, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to preach, and who didn't have an education, but like John Owen said, he would surrender all his education to be able to preach like him. Do you know how, how they would have dealt with that? I, I have no idea. So. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, what do we do with a bunion? Um, especially when someone as learned as John Owen said that, yeah, he would give up all his education and more if only he could preach um, a sermon like Bunyan did. Well, first of all, Bunyan and Owen have roughly the same church polity. So... Yeah. You could make the question harder on me. Um, you know, they both believe that congregational election is ordination. But nonetheless, what do you do with a Bunyan or a Spurgeon? I, I say Bunyans and Spurgeons don't need to go to seminary. Fine, I'll, 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 I'll accept that. But uh, there are many people who think they're Bunyans and Spurgeons. <laughs> and, you know, even their wives know better. Uh, so, so that's the problem with that. Um, 
Yeah, there are people who are truly remarkable. Um, you know, and, and even then, uh, you know, D.L. Moody would be, would be, you know, another example. I, he's, he's not properly trained. Um, but uh, a Presbyterian minister in D.L. Moody's day did, did usefully uh, make the observation that if, if he is so gifted, why not allow others to assist him in assessing those gifts? And why not have the church encourage him in that gift and send him on? So even that level of gifting doesn't necessarily, you know, call for uh, uh, for for avoiding a proper ordination. Yeah, it's a good question. We could go on longer, but that's that's the quick answer. Yeah. Yes, Steve. Okay, uh, and my question is that uh, the Continental Reformation had the three forms of unity prior to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so they had the benefit of that. Maybe even built on the shoulders of yeah. that. Um, and do you think, so my question is, do you think that they believed that the Westminster Confession of Faith should be the single doc- doctrinal standard for mm-hmm. the English-speaking world? Or do you think that they felt there was value in the other... Confession, the three forms of unity. Yeah, that's such a great question. Three forms of unity. You know, how how's the Westminster? How did the Westminster Assembly think their own confession might have might have ranked? What's the usefulness in those other documents? The Heidelberg Catechism uh, is the best-selling catechism yeah. in England, like forever, um, until the Shorter Catechism. Um, but the Westminster Assembly has many catechisms in view. The Church of England actually has a shorter and larger catechism, which many people use. Um, many ministers made their own catechisms. There's nothing sort of sacrosanct about catechesis. Uh, uh, it's not like there's just the three forms of unity. At least 25, maybe 20, 25 members of the Assembly published their own catechisms. Uh, many others would have had just their own manuscript copies, their own handwritten copies that they would have used. So bucket loads of catechisms. Why make another one? Well, a couple things. Uh, n- number one, um, the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is not always easy to, to memorize. Um, the, the, the question, uh, sorry, the answer does not always stand on its own. You often need to understand the question asked in order for the answer to make sense. Not just that, you sometimes need to have whole series of questions and answers before a particular answer makes sense. And that's typical of catechisms of the day. You know, catech- uh, uh, Calvin has a catechism where, where at one point, you, you know, it says minister, and he asks a quick question. The child says, yes. The minister, why? The child says, because, you know, it, you know the, it's, it's, a di- it's just a dialogue. And there are members of the assembly who are saying, wait a minute, we could do better than that. We can create questions and answers where each answer stands on its own as a distinct truth. And we can make a series of questions where, where any one question could be asked without dependence on other questions before it. And so it's much easier to memorize. Um, the Canons of Dort, they only discuss the doctrine of salvation and don't even say everything there. Uh, the Belgic Confession, um, again, covers many important points, but but... The, one of the most intense periods of doctrinal development. Ah, do I want to say doctrinal development? Doctrinal discovery, if you will. Doctrinal clarification. Um, 
uh, follows from that busy period in the 1560s up to the Westminster Assembly. Um, uh, covenant theology, federal theology, is, is really gets mainstreamed only in the 17th century. And so having a confessional text that's really clear about that um, is sort of one of the objectives of the majority, not everybody, but the majority in the assembly. So there's just a scatter, scattering of reasons why they, they, would, they would think that they needed to add more. Um, yeah. It's a start to an answer. 